Welcome to the GeoMob Podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. So this morning, or well, it's morning in California and it's afternoon in London, I've got my old friend Ken Field here with me to talk about mapping responsibly. Ken was one of the first friends that I made when I got into geo back in the 90s. He's also the co-editor and founder of Mapri.org, the website that I run with him. And he's the founder of Longitude, a meetup event for the UK DataViz community. He describes himself as a self-confessed Carter nerd with a personal and professional passion for mapping. He spent 20 years in UK academia before moving to sunny California to join Esri in 2011. He's presented and published an awful lot. He blogs, he tweets endlessly, much more than I do. And he's also the past editor of the Cartographic Journal and the chair of the ICA Map Commission. In fact, you could sum him up as an expert map maker. He's in love with maps. He makes them, he collects them, he writes about them. And more importantly for us today, he's devoted to encouraging others to make good maps and to make maps responsibly. He's the author of a best-selling book. Well, actually, it's a brick of a book. It's a great, massive volume entitled Cartography Full Stop, which is a compendium of advice for map makers. If you want an impressive book to put on the coffee table, this will do the job. If you want a fantastic resource to help you make better maps, this will do more than do the job. And above all, Ken has a lifelong love of Nottingham Forest Football Club, which he continuously reminds me has won the European Cup twice, which is two times more than Arsenal have ever won a European competition. So that's my guest for this afternoon, Ken Field. So Ken, before we start talking about mapping responsibility, tell us what a Carter nerd is. Hey, Stephen. I think you've said it all, haven't you? There's no, there's nothing else to say. But he sounds like a really boring guy, that guy. <laughs> uh, thanks for having me on. The it's podcast is great. Um, I've listened to, to some of them so far, and it's they're really good fun. So I'm, in, I'm interested to know where this, this 30 minutes heads. Let's see where it goes. What is a cartoon nerd? It is a stupid little moniker that I invented about 10 years ago to describe what I do, because... You know, people think of me as a cartographer, but I've never actually had a job title called cartographer. I've been a university lecturer. I've been a researcher. My official job title here at Esri is principal cartographic software engineer. Well, I mean, I, (laughs) you know. You don't engineer software, as far as I know. Make of that what you will, but it's, you know. Mm. So I I just, it's just a bit of silliness, really. It was just, you know, something to go with my little cartoon avatar to, I I guess you'd call it branding, I suppose, but that's what it's just a bit of So what got you into maps in the first, you know? Was it as a Boy Scout? Was it when you went did geography at school? Yeah, I mean, I was always, you know, I always loved the geography classes. My geography teacher, Mrs. Burston, back in Nottingham. You know, you can always remember the names of your great teachers, can't you? And yeah, uh, yeah. she was terrific. And, you know, I just I just loved going into the geography class. Because curiously enough, I was quite good at physics as well. And my physics teacher wanted me desperately to do something there. And I just said, no, because I hate it. It's boring. 
And then when I was looking for a, a, a degree to do, I just didn't want to do a standard geography degree because, you know, there's no such job as geographer, really. So I wanted something that I could then translate into a career eventually, I guess. So I, I found this course called Cartography at Oxford Polytechnic, as it was then. And yeah, it was fantastic. I had a, I had a fantastic three years studying cartography alongside geography. And then entered the workplace at precisely the point that this thing called GIS came along and killed professional cartography. So I then... Oh, so you were doing cartography with a pen in those days? Yeah, I mean, I did. I did. And a lot of the sort of concepts and things we did were pen and drawing and uh, laying down lettering with mechanical type and going into dark rooms and building up maps in that sense. I mean, I did do really rudimentary computer cartography on very early Macs. And as I was graduating, this thing called GIS appeared on the curriculum, which I missed. Um, so I, I sort of fell into that at a research level at a university and then just fell into lecturing, really. Um, I did do a, a work placement at some point during my degree at um, British Geological Survey in Keyworth. I spent six weeks in the, right. in the drawing room there. And I have to tell you, it was during that experience that I said I would never, ever be a cartographer what a boring job i thought it was just well it was hideous you know it's like literally eight hours a day yeah. sitting there with a black pen yeah. drawing a line of consistent width and then at 10 30 it was 30 minutes of coffee break and the, the radio went on and the whole drawing office put their pens down and did uh, it, it was just so regimented and tedious and i hated it but, so, but they also had an integrated workstation you... and i enjoyed that that was right. fun so when i first started in geo which was in about 1998 you know it was a second career for me and i was helping out a guy called mike klein who ran a business called gdc in london which you probably can remember yep. vaguely yeah. and i went there in between jobs i went there to help him out for a few weeks and i came home i don't know at the end of the first week collapsed on the sofa and said to donna there's no way I can stay here for it. I'm going to last more than the few weeks that we've arranged. I can't imagine how I could do this, right? Sure enough, four years later, I was helping a management buy out of the company, sold it, you know, and everything started from there. But, you know, it's strange how you look at a job in the first few weeks and you think, I can't possibly do this. And then you discover that actually... It's like everything almost. There's a lot of fun once you get into it. So what do you do now at Esri? You know, you said you're what, Chief Cartographic Software Engineer? No, no, no. Don't put the chief. There, there is, no, no. Our job titles no are, are generic. So I'm a Principal Cartographic Software Engineer. And right. What does that mean? Well, exactly. What does it mean? Um, so I refuse to have business cards with that on it because if you hand that out, you have a five-minute conversation about what the heck that job title is rather than, you know, having a conversation. So what do I do? I w work on the team or one of the teams that are responsible for developing ArcGIS Pro, our desktop software, and I'm on the map authoring sort of sub-team there. You know, we have maybe I don't know, 25 people on this team and we're a mix of product engineers who are the people who help design the software, you know, its functionality, its needs, what people want from it and developers who then obviously go off and program and implement it. So part of my job is making maps to support testing and design and delivery of the software. But I also have a really open remit. I'm extremely fortunate that they let me do 
all sorts of other stuff like you know writing the book or books as it is going to be going going out into the world and sort of doing workshops and teaching people and uh, presenting on cartography and um, you know how to make maps with with our particular stack although you know as an ex-academic my, my real motivation is helping people make better maps no no matter what they use obviously i show them one particular way but you know there's a multitude of different ways and better mapping is is my sort of key job motivation i guess yeah, yeah. so you're sort of the person who brings the map maker's view to the product design and engineering team? Uh, one of them. I mean, th there's a lot yeah. of people here. There's a few Yeah, of them. yeah. But I mean, I just happen to be a little more visible, I guess, because of all the other stuff I do. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, I work with some extremely talented colleagues here who, uh, you know, people will possibly never even have heard of. But, you know, they are no less experts in, in mapping and cartography. And, um, you know, that's how we're able to, to develop something decent, I think. What a fun job to get paid <laughs> to have a... To live in the sunshine yeah. and to get paid paid for doing what you really enjoy doing. It, it is a it's seriously a tremendous privilege, and uh, yeah, there isn't a day go by when I don't sort of look out the window and go, you know what, I think this is okay. And yeah. you know, in terms of work, I have very little to complain about. It's it's a great place to work, and uh, it's a great industry to be in. And I, I actually, I'm delighted. I actually made the jump from academia into the commercial sector which a lot of people have done in gis over the years getting out of the sort of academic yeah and i think that's a good thing and i think it would be good if there was a little bit more travel in the opposite direction yeah well that's this, this um, is the problem once you once you sort of go out of academia and you realize you were bashing your head against brick walls for very little you know with all the incessant mm. demands of research assessment and bureaucracy and administration academia is not a not a pleasant place to be in many respects no, i suppose my view of academia as as a part-time external lecturer at nottingham yep. is somewhat you know it was very privileged you know you'd rock up give a few lectures run a few workshops you weren't being paid so you weren't being assessed and it was a very pleasant experience yeah. and but it's not proper academia, really. No, you get to no. all the good bits and the enjoyable bits, and they're, yeah. they're the bits in some respects I miss. I mean, I really missed working mm. with, you know, really great students. But on the other hand, I still teach, I still write, I get to go to conferences and present. I basically do everything I did as an academic, but I don't have to mark a whole load of essays, and I don't have to sit on endless internal faculty meetings that, you know, they're just talking shops for, for no good reason. So, you know, it, it is... I think I made the right switch. I enjoy it. I think it's it's uh, Good. it's been a very so healthy move. You also get to talk quite a lot about mapping responsibly. And um, you and I have done a talk together in Tanzania on that subject. But And, of course, more recently, you wrote that blog post that Ed Frey Fogel and I spoke about a couple of weeks back on mapping the coronavirus responsibly. Let's start by just asking you to give the background to that post on mapping coronavirus. What happened that prompted you to write that long post on mapping responsibly? Well, I guess that was what, about the 28th of February or so. So we're, we're recording this on sort of 11th of March, just for context. Yeah. And yeah, as is... As is my way, as, as, as is many people's way, you know, wake up in the morning and your social media starts flirting with you and you see things. And, you know, a lot, a lot of my feeds are to do with 
maps and data visualizations and who said this and what organizations are publishing that and i started to see you know a lot of maps and dashboards and graphs being made about the uh, the covid-19 outbreak uh, at just about the time when china was starting to show pretty serious increases in the epidemic so i saw a lot of these and i saw some pretty awful ones i have to say and i'm not going to pick on anybody you know in this particular podcast but some pretty big news organizations were putting out maps that were less than optimal shall we say i mean there are other words we could use but they'll probably get bleeped out <laughs> but uh, you know and it's like well what, what's happening here you know these maps are consumed by millions of people and they are misleading people because of all manner of different design choices that were were either made or and that's bad if that was the case or perhaps the people don't really know what they're doing with the data so you know the maps are just coming out because they've poured their data into whatever system they use to help create the maps and publish it and it, it really bothers me when you know maps and graphics are put out on very very public facing large media organization websites and broadcasts and so forth and I sit there and look at the map saying, this is not telling people what you think it is telling people. You know, these maps are being consumed by people who don't have the wherewithal to understand how the mapping technique is mediating the message they're seeing. And nor should they. They're busy being experts in everything else they're experts in. They can't be cartographic experts as well. But it's absolutely incumbent on the people that are making these maps to do so responsibly and to give people effective mechanisms to help answer their basic curiosity and their their needs for information. And in I this think case. Lead, following on from that, it's a responsibility on all of us who make maps to recognise that the audience that reads those maps doesn't have the cartographic skills and knowledge that we have. So it's it's not good enough to say well the legend says and they should be able to interpret people glance at a map and draw an impression from a map and maybe retrospectively read the legend and the notes at the bottom of the map so you know it is really important that we we take account of the lack of map literacy of the audience for these maps yeah i I mean basically people believe what they're shown and they always have them Mm. and we can't expect people to unpack all of the issues within the cartography of communicating information you know maps are are rarely wrong but they all do tell very very different stories based on how how they're built and also how they're how they're read what is also important is there is some element of responsibility on the map reader but it's it's also important that we don't assume that you know so we have to design around it more than anything. So if you had to sum up that post in terms of what are the key messages for, and let's broaden this out from not just talking about coronavirus, but talking about any maps for widespread public consumption in the media. Let's use the maps that we see in the media. What would be your, your key messages for those, those map makers? Firstly, not to be so, I, I guess the term, it may be a bit too strong, but not to be so arrogant that you think you know how to do everything. You might and you might not. And if you have any sort of uncertainty, get some advice from other people who do know what they're on about and 
collaborate with people and just pass a map in front of somebody's eyes who knows about mapping and say, what do you think? Is there anything you could tell me that's going to help improve this? I would encourage people to try to understand the numbers rather than just pouring data into into your favorite mapping tool. Because of course, you know, it's the same when you pour data into a spreadsheet, you know, it's going to give you some answer when you some columns yeah. or, you know, it'll give you some data. But yeah. what does it mean? If you don't know what it is that you're trying to do and you don't understand the data and you don't understand the sort of mechanisms behind the data, which is part of the problem with the COVID-19 visualizations, you know, we're dealing with infectious diseases. Epidemiologists have been dealing with them for decades and decades. They're based on yeah. complicated models of spatial diffusion and so on and so forth. Just simply creating a map of showing where cases are doesn't tell people, is there... A problem where I live, you know, do I, should I travel to this city? Should I avoid a congregation in this particular area? You know, th these sensible questions, but they can't be resolved by a simple map of a large aggregated number based on very, very uncertain data. Anyway, we've got different reporting mechanisms. We've got different testing regimes. We've got different um, rates of exposure and rates of the epidemic in different areas. And so comparisons are, are almost meaningless at this particular point. And, th and that's the same for any of any map of any sort of data. You know, yeah. It's um, the same basic ideas about cartography. It doesn't matter whether you're mapping, you know, a disease epidemic or um, election data or whatever it might be. There's some, some, you know, basic sense to being very considerate about the numbers that you're, you're mapping. I read today that most of the stats that we're getting and that certainly that are being reported in the press are still reporting the total number of reported cases of COVID-19. So they're making, taking no account of the roughly 50% who are now have gone through the illness and are cured. Yeah, and, and this is part of the problem. I mean, the spatial epidemiology, epidemiology of infectious diseases is not a simple concept and you know what some people may not understand is when I was at Northampton University I taught medical geography for 10 years so I did actually have to get into this and my, my PhD was on health mm. geography as well and you know just just looking at total numbers doesn't doesn't really give us any sensible no. metric it, it's fatality and mortality rates are massively different in different areas for different age groups for people with underlying health conditions where we are on a particular epidemic curve is important increases in numbers may appear alarming but we might actually be on the other point of downside of the curve even though numbers appear to be increasing because epidemics follow an exponential growth curve not a, an arithmetic curve and in fact you know what if if you map if you graph things linearly they look horrendous but really if you graph them logarithmically what we want to look for is 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 where the curve starts flattening off and becomes right. a, a logistic curve and the point at which the curve starts to flatten is called the inflection point and then we end up you know basically in a in a sort of a, the other side of the the epidemic as we we start to yep. see more people recovering less people getting it etc etc so yeah totals or maps simple bar charts of today's situation with non-comparable regions they are they are yeah they're misleading there are so many yeah. i mean i know when ed and i were talking about this we came to the position that we couldn't we weren't even sure that we should that maps were helpful in 
in explaining what was going on with COVID. I think I would agree. But of course, you know, data is data and people put data on maps. <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. We're not going to get over yeah. that, you know, but that's just the way of the world. I, I would I would recommend people sit back and question why they're making the map, though. I mean, clearly for some, it's yeah. their job and it's part of their provision to provide information. For others, maybe, you know, is it public servicing or is it self-servicing? Are you just trying to show people that mm-hmm. you, you can scrape data and make a map? Well, that's cool. Great. Lovely. But these maps are consumed and you know as well as I do that, you know, a lot of maps that don't deserve to go viral, go viral. And a lot of maps yeah. that should go viral and be really, you know, they're the ones that people should go to actually don't. So we can't they never choose. get seen. Yeah, I know. And that's yeah. I once I did a talk a couple of years ago on fake maps and some of the mistakes that you could make in making a map. Mm. And one of my sort of sort of headline suggestions that I gave to people was if you make a map and it shows exactly what you were expecting it to show, go and make a coffee, <laughs> come back and have another look at it, or maybe ask a friend to have a look at it, which is actually what you said right at the beginning. And I think, you know, it's such an important point that we all go into a map making or a data analysis, you know, never mind whether it's a map or a chart, you know, we go into it with some kind of idea of what trend or or theme we want, we expect to be showing. And when the results come out how we expect, we think, oh, that's good. And we walk away and we forget that our biases have probably heavily influenced the way we've selected and processed the data. Well, I mean, there's bias in everything we do, isn't there? And it's bound to yeah. be the case. Um, there's bias in how people read the map as well. And frankly, I could, I could take a data set and basically make a map to tell whatever story you want it to tell. Just, I think just you're by... about to do that with your next book, aren't you? <laughs> well, yeah. So the second book is, you know, it's on election mapping and it's 101 ways to map the same data. And right. that's the point. You want to make a really partisan map? Of course you can. If you want to make a bipartisan mm. map, of course you can. And so it's 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 just important. And I, I guess going all the way back to that sort of pen and ink stuff that I did in my degree, mm. the one thing that's missing today with people's ability to make maps is is that appreciation of time and to take the time to think about what it is you're doing. And I'm not decrying modern mapping at all. It, it, obviously, it's great and it's here. And mm. I love the fact that anybody can make a map. But sit back, think about it, make choices based on intent and good decisions rather than just assuming the software is going to do it for you. Software has to have defaults, has to. And better defaults are always better. And that's that's partly what we try to do here is make better defaults so you you um, have less opportunity to make a mess. But you can only become a smarter map maker if you have a little bit of knowledge uh, and, and and apply that knowledge. And like I said, if you don't, just ask someone. It's, it's, not, yeah. it's not difficult. It would be great if when you started to map data, the software could steer you towards the better ways of mapping the data and yeah. avoiding some of the pitfalls, you know, like normalizing your data, for example. Yeah, I know. But, you know, I mean, this isn't a conversation necessarily about ArcGIS Pro, but you go to make, no, you get, you go to make a Coralpleth map in our software and, you know, you, there's first two drop, drop downs are what is the variable to map? And then the next drop down is normalization. 
So the, the hint is there. Right. But we can't prevent people from mapping totals in other mapping techniques because that's just as valid. And the other thing I would say is, you know, we've done an awful lot of work, for instance, in once you've made those selections, we give you a subset of all the color choices available, which are more right. sensible for that. So software does do this to an extent, but it, it varies amongst different software packages. And, and the truth is that software is not a way of getting around the need to have expertise. Yeah, I think you, you have to have your, the knowledge. Just because you can use a spreadsheet doesn't make you an accountant. Exactly. Just because you can use a GIS does not make you a map maker. No, but I mean, you think just how life has progressed. You know, we all do have spreadsheets on our computers now, so we do do that. Yeah. We all have word yeah. processors, so we're all writers now. We all have mapping software, so we can make a map. So <laughs> the proliferation and availability of tools has allowed us to actually, you know, get involved in a much broader um, yeah, and that's a good work. thing. That's a good I thing. I think so. Yeah. I think so. But yeah. but it does mean we just have to step back from time to time and think. Uh, and certainly with the books I've written, you know, I, I can write. But once I've passed it to an editor, oh, I can <laughs> see how much better the work is. So that's their expertise. I wouldn't be so stupid to publish a book without putting it through a professional editor. And, and that's the same with the map, I think. Yep, I think you're right. Now... I'm going to just, I can't resist cartograms because I hate cartograms. You know that. And you ticked me off for my <laughs> strong views on cartograms. And you said, well, just because you're contrary and you're my mate. And you said, um, <laughs> you said to me roughly words to, to the effect that a cartogram doesn't need to add anything in terms of information above an ordinary map. And you then told me that a cartogram was just another way of normalizing the data. I disagree strongly. <laughs> well, you can't have your own facts. I mean, the fact, the fact is a cartogram is a perfectly reasonable way of mapping data. It is the counter to normalizing the data within a geographic map because you normalize the area to accommodate the differences in area size and population density. So technically, there's nothing wrong with it. Now, where I will absolutely back you up and agree with you is that people have a visceral hatred of them if they don't like them. It's the Marmite of maps. You know, okay. it really is. Cartograms, I love Marmite. Cartograms evoke really visceral responses. Some people love them and some people just hate them. The other thing I'd say is we must be absolutely clear here. We're talking about what's what we know as the, the population density equalizing cartogram, the Gaston and Newman one, the one that mm. you know warps and distorts geography. But that's only one type of the Salvador Dali. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's plenty of other types of cartogram, gridded cartograms, you know, he hexagons, for yeah. instance, binned cartograms. So let's not paint them all with, you know, no, that, that brush. You're absolutely right, and. I certainly, when I, when I was sounding off about cartograms, I was sounding off about those Gastner, whatever you call it, things. Those stretched abortions, as I call them. <laughs> well, so part of the problem uh, with those is if you've got uh, a massive range in your data sets with some very high values and a lot of very low values, which for the COVID-19 data is certainly what we're seeing. So that will bulge some places massively and it will contract many many others massively so it probably leads you to 
you know, look at it and go, what on earth, what on earth is that? I think more to the point, you know, it leads me to do that, and I understand what's going on with a, that type of cartogram. Well, I, let, let me say the, this to let me say this to the you. general how, public. How many cartograms have you seen on news media sites? I haven't. So I, I haven't. I, you, no, it was. You, you could go so no, far as to say that actually, people are being responsible, and they're not using bizarre mapping techniques or let, let's no bizarre is the wrong word um they're not using the, you know the slightly more avant-garde uh, yeah, mapping. yeah that's a good way of putting it you know people are sticking to fairly tried and trusted mechanisms uh, there's a place for cartograms and you know in a very very fluid emerging situation with a, a disease epidemic it's probably not the time to start messing around with experimental cartography let's say okay that's a good point for us to agree on that and <laughs> just move on to a question that I wanted to ask you, which is, do you think that free and open software and APIs and open data have created a problem for us, or are they part, just part of the democratization of cartography? Um, I think that's probably a leading question. Um, I don't think it's a blame game. I think proprietary is just as you could you could throw everything in the mix you know people can make maps and what's exacerbated the problem is just over the last 10 or 12 years an awful lot of people are coming out of computer science programs and finding that maps are built on numbers whether it's coordinates and coordinates with attributes attached with them and data is published in yeah. all over the place and it's like well oh great we can do something with this now, if you were a traditional cartographer, and I'm not going to name names, but people do have, do this, you'd sit back and you'd moan and you'd say, well, who are these upstarts who are coming and, you know, basically doing the work that I'm trained to do? Well, you know, that's just jump on board because that's the way things, yeah. you know, you either jump on board and, and reskill or you, or you die as a map maker. And, uh, you know, I've probably morphed through all sorts of different software and tech throughout throughout my career. And you just have to and you have to get on with it. So you change things and you say, well, you know, let me help you rather than just be critical. So has it exacerbated the problem? If you think of it as a problem, then maybe. But you could think of it as an opportunity as well. There's so many more people getting involved in making making maps so we might see a higher proportion of you know pretty poor maps but we also see a pretty good proportion of better maps and if i look over the last 10 years those the ratio of what i see as poor to what is pretty good is actually improved dramatically so um that's that's a, that's a great thing i think okay so I agree with you. I absolutely agree with oh, you. I, I mean, we're I think, agreeing. This is what sort of what sort of conversation uh, is this? That's a fine conversation, you know. <laughs> I, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, I you know, I mean, particularly because you know, I come at it from the sort of open source community, and I've done a fair amount in the open sure. data community, yeah. you know. And I think it's a great thing. And I think allowing people to experiment with data and to come up with different perspectives and insights on that data is incredibly valuable for society in general. It does mean you're going to get people making what we would consider to be elementary errors. But, uh, but you know, that, and that's where that's there's an okay. opportunity to reach out. Yeah, that's that's fine. Yeah. And that's that goes back to my point earlier. As long as people are open to others pitching in and saying, hey, there's a problem with this or there's an issue or I think you can make this slightly better. And they go, you know, their, their response is, oh, thanks for that. But and I've had both. I've had both even in this last 
couple of weeks, you know, I've worked with a, a major newspaper editor, visual graphics editor, and they've changed because they've gone, oh, thanks. And I've been in discussions with a major broadcaster and they're intransigent, you know, so you win some, you lose some. Yeah. And uh, I think that's just a constant journey that we're going through, you know, educating people, helping people. Yeah. If, if everyone made the maps, great. I wouldn't have a job, would, that, would I? So No, that's a good point. <laughs> this, so, is, this is career longevity I've got in mind here. So before we wind up, my first memory of meeting you, Ken, was at an AGI party. I mean, I don't know when we're going back to, but we're probably going back to 2000 or 1999, something like that. And you were wearing a white shirt with the Ordnance Survey's map licensing terms printed on the front and the back and the sleeves of this shirt. Mm. What was going on? Yeah, this was the late 90s, wasn't it? This was, this was the period yeah. of, oh, Charles Arthur was talking about opening data up and you know, open street map yeah. was just sort of starting to bubble, I think, if I remember rightly. And yeah, there were lots of discussions about government data sets being made publicly available and <laughs> Of course, Ordnance Survey at that time you know, had a pretty, let's be polite, a pretty, pretty restrictive license, shall we say. And at the time, I was working at Kingston University, and this made made it difficult for trying to do GIS with UK data, because you know it was. I actually helped set up some of the Digimap services at Edina in the in around about the same time. So, if I remember rightly, we used to have fancy dress, didn't we, at the Geo Community sort of? We did. Uh, and I'm surprised you remember we it. Did. I'm surprised you remember it because, as I also recall, it was fairly uh, liberal with the the liquid as well. It was fairly yeah. liquid, liberal so, with the liquid, but uh, so we I, were younger then, I, so we could consume more. <laughs> That's true. So I thought, oh, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to come as a license. And my colleague, good friend and colleague James O'Brien, who I worked with at Kingston, uh, we decided to come as two sides of the same coin. So I came as an Ordnance Survey license, and he came as a Creative Commons license. So oh yes. I just printed. I just got the Ordnance Survey license and I just printed it on the, onto a shirt and it. Uh, I haven't got the shirt anymore. I think it just basically collapsed after that evening. Uh, and James just printed a very nice small circle with CC in it on the front. He had a much easier job. And that was the point. Yeah. It was like, well, and that, here are two licenses. Yep. One is simple and one is really quite convoluted. And, you know, it was a bit of fun. Um, but I do, have a pic- I do have a picture of it, and I believe Jeremy Morley is in the background in the picture in a yes. tuxedo. Jeremy Morley is in the background in a tuxedo, and I think that's Angerad Stone, yeah, but I'm not sure. Yeah. And we'll put that fabulous picture of you and James in the show notes at the when we publish the podcast. Yeah, it was a while ago, so, so I've got hair then. That's true, you have. <laughs> and if I may say so... It's a slightly slimmer and spelter Kenfield than the one, the cuddly guy that I know now. Yeah, it's very kind of you to say cuddly, but, you know, sitting on your backside in front of a computer all day is... It's hard work. It's not it's hard work. Yeah, yeah. So, Ken, my closing question's for you. The normal closing question is your favourite moment from a geomob that you've attended. Yeah, easy for me because I've been to one. Right. Because I, I don't live anywhere near London at the minute. No. No, it was a couple of years ago I, I came to one. I brought a cheese board. I just Ah, uh, yes. The uh, cheeses of Britain. The cheeses of Britain. Let's just do something. It was also memorable, if I recall, for the fact that um, I made a complete hash of my presentation because I couldn't get... Uh, the, my computer 
decided to oh, basically, yeah. basically blue screen it and then someone insisted i had to use a mac which if, if you know me is, is like I, I can't do yeah. that it just doesn't work so uh, i think i think it was gary gale who sorted me out with his mac in the end and we got through it but yeah um, we got through it no yeah. i wish i could come to some more but um maybe i'll make sure i'm around next time there's, no, there's one well there's going to be one at the if there is a London Mapping Week in May, mm. then there might be a mob during that week. Yeah, and we're also planning a longitude event that week as well. But obviously, uh, right. stay tuned for on a different night. Happens. So yeah. we'll have two opportunities to hang out together and talk about maps. And an extra bonus question for you: mm-hmm. We've been running Mappery now for eighteen months, twenty months. Yep. If you've got to pick one map in the wild that we've published. Which one would it be? Right, you're going to hate me for this. I'm not going to, no, I'm not. I'm not going to pick a map. I, I just love okay. the variety. That's what I pick. Okay. I think it's fantastic. The fact that it's just an obscene number of different circumstances in which maps are seen in the wild. I mean, they can be they can be on anything, and they can they can yeah. look, they can look like anything. There may even be a cartogram somewhere in the wild that you look at and smile. <laughs> Yes, you're right. You're right. And that's, that's so, the beauty of it, right? I think that's, I think it's just a bit of fun. It's good. Now I've got a sneaky question that I'm just going to throw in. Okay. Which map do you think has had, by a massive, massive margin, the most views on the site since we launched? Oh, wow. Uh, can I quickly bring up the, uh, the admin page? Go I ahead. Don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's... Absolutely gobsmacking. Go Should I tell you? Go save on. your time? Yeah. We published a picture of a colossal map, which I said was possibly the world's largest map. Okay. And I can't remember where it is. It's somewhere. It's not Romania, I don't think, but it's somewhere in Central Europe. You can, we'll go and look afterwards. Yeah. But the amazing thing is that because of the way Google indexes our site, Yeah. If you search for the world's largest map, Mapri will come up. Oh, cool. That's good. And how many page views has it had? Oh, a couple of thousand, which is 2,000 roughly, which in the context of the site is massively, you know, most posts get 100, 150 views is a a well-viewed post because not many people go to the website. They view it on Twitter or they get the newsletter, you know. This is just the website's um, stats, but it's it's fascinating. Can I give you a stat just to finish up with? Go on. So when I started working at Esri in 2011, my first blog post on the Esri site got more page views in the first week (laughs) than uh, all of my academic papers had received in the previous 20 years, and (laughs) which is incredible, right? And the recent coronavirus blog that I wrote as of today as of today has had quarter of a million page views on our site and and the Twitter thread that I put out which was basically the same content Mm. just in tweet has had 80,000 impressions so this is what I'm talking about when I talk about reach and the the need to do things responsibly you know people people consume stuff that they read and see on the internet so we've got to do it responsibly I think Absolutely. And that sounds to me like a really good point for us to finish. So just before we go, Ken, tell people who want to 
follow you and learn a bit more about cartography where they can find you well if you can stand it I'm, I'm most visible on on the twitter thing at kenneth field and just as an aside the only reason i'm on twitter is because of a guy called stephen feldman who persuaded me it was the next greatest thing back in early oh, yes. 2009 so basically i'm on twitter and it's all stephen's fault that's right. probably that's when you were still at kingston <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 i think you came to do a, a little lecture didn't you yeah um, i did and uh, so that's probably the main thing but there's all sorts of blogs that i'm involved with and it's not not difficult to find my email if you want to get in touch okay ken it's been a pleasure yeah thank you we completely screwed up on keeping this to 30 minutes oh did we i'm gonna get a massive bollocking from ed frey fogel for running way over time we'll just cut your been... comments out okay i'll do that <laughs> it's been a lot of fun thanks so i'm gonna say goodbye ken take thanks care thanks a lot Stephen. bye Thanks, everyone, for joining us today and listening to the GeoMob podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is Geomob. You can follow Steven at Steven Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode, and of course, seeing you at a future Geomob event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.